This is The Craft of Governance, a podcast providing insight into the boardroom. Welcome to the Directors Academy podcast series focused on the craft of governance sponsored by Allegis Partners. I'm Keith Meyer, the president and one of the founders of the Academy. During this series of podcasts, uh, we invite a number of our Academy community members to share their unique insights and perspectives on key elements of corporate governance, board leadership, and key issues that are uh, currently facing uh, corporate boards. Today, I'm pleased to have with us Gail Goldman-Holtzman. Gail joins us from Florida, where she is with Jackson Lewis, and uh, the topic today is a very timely one. It uh, revolves around the board and the board's role in shaping uh, the company's culture. So uh, a very interesting topic. Gail, uh, maybe you could start with just a few words about your background and experience in this area. I would be happy to. Thank you, Keith. I've been practicing labor and employment law for 34 years. I'm proudly the past chair of the American Bar Association Labor and Employment Law Section, and I have spent my career working with employers in this area, addressing uh, these issues that we're going to focus on today in labor and employment law, counseling employers, preparing policies, litigating cases, conducting investigations and training, and also serving as a neutral mediator. Fantastic. Well, let's just dive into this topic, Gail. So if we think about the board's role in shaping the company's culture, how do you uh, look at this issue today and how important it is? Well, I think it's critically important, and I don't think we can answer the question is why is this issue so important now without really looking at this moment in history and focusing on the dramatic and powerful impact of the global hashtag MeToo and Time's Up women's empowerment movement. Uh, These movements have put the spotlight on corporate governance, accountability, and abuses of power, and they've dramatically affected the way business is conducted in our country and globally. Uh, Just by way of background, in 2006, a civil rights African-American activist, Tarana Burke, started using the phrase Me Too to raise awareness of the pervasiveness of sexual abuse and assault in society. And after the Harvey Weinstein allegations surfaced more than 10 years later, actress Alyssa Milano popularized the movement on October 15, 2017, asking others to tweet, me too, if they also had been sexually harassed or assaulted. And thus, the Me Too movement became a revolutionary viral phenomenon with the support of journalists' investigative reports. And then with regard to the Time's Up movement, a group of more than 300 women in Hollywood, including high-profile actresses, began speaking out to change the entertainment industry with actions focusing on a safe workplace and equality. Um, Interestingly, in 2017, Time Magazine named the Silence Breakers the Person of the Year, focusing on the women who launched a movement against sexual harassment. The cover image accompanying the story features um, actresses and others who have uh, spoken up against sexual misconduct, such as Ashley Judd, Taylor Swift, and former Uber engineer Susan Fowler. It's amazing, isn't it, in, in some ways, Gail, how fast this uh, this movement has taken shape. But if you look at kind of the underlying 
factors and what's driving it, I think it would also be important to, to share how does the body of law and, uh, you know, if you think about workplace harassment and kind of the legal framework that underpins, uh, you know, how we think about taking actions in, 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 against individuals that are doing this, what do we have there to, to kind of uh, give us counsel, I guess, or hope that there's, you know, something that we can rely on from a legal perspective as well? Well, Keith, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as amended is one of the major federal laws that prohibits discrimination in employment, including discrimination based on gender. And more than 30 years ago, in the case of Meritor Savings Bank versus Vinson, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a unanimous decision, held that sexual harassment that results in a hostile work environment is a violation of Title VII, even in the absence of any tangible economic discrimination. The justices held that unwelcome conduct based on gender that is severe and pervasive constitutes sexual harassment in violation of Title VII and found that Congress intended to strike at the entire spectrum of disparate treatment of men and women in employment. So we've got a very fundamental uh, legal ground here to, to work from. But also let's talk about uh, some of the policies in EEO, uh, the commission, and, and how you think about, you know, the, the broader federal mandates that are out there as well to protect employees. Right. Well, Keith, as a result of what we have seen with these movements and the development of law, there's an increased focus now on and scrutiny of a company's culture, including how the company works to prevent and address harassment and abuses of power. Um, and there's attention also focused on the gender gap, pay equity, and transparency issues as well as the uh, call for diversity and inclusion in leadership, including in the C-suite and boardroom. Let's turn our attention to the board, Gail. And how, if, if you're thinking about this issue as a board member, you know, what are the risks of not taking action? What are the implications of boards that may be passive to date on, on these potential issues that are potentially percolating up inside the organization? Well, Keith, the fallout, as we've seen from news reports, <clears throat> of sexual harassment claims can destroy a company very quickly. Information flow is immediate, and its reputational impact can be catastrophic. We've seen examples of this occur in the tech, media, and entertainment industries, as well as the financial services industry. We've observed employee protests and walkouts, investors jumping ship, declining profits, employee turnover, losses, including shareholder derivative suits, required public disclosures, and even interference with pending mergers and acquisitions. Today, there's a responsibility for shareholders to be accountable and to ensure that the workplace is safe, compliant, and many would argue uh, transparent. Interestingly, Keith, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, is the federal agency that enforces Title VII. And even before the Harvey Weinstein and development of the um, Me Too uh, movement um, in 2016, the EEOC uh, developed a task force called the EEOC Select Task Force on the Study
study of harassment in the workplace. And the task force uh, developed a report uh, which can be accessed at the EEOC website, www.eeoc.gov. And uh, there are many findings and recommendations in this report, but um, one that is critical is for purposes of our podcast today is that um, the change of culture starts at the top and leadership and accountability are critical. As you think about, Gail, um, I, I know you've worked with a number of organizations around this topic and the exposure and, and potential liability. It's it's not just a legal, I think, uh, uh, perspective, but also just a practical one. How do boards become more engaged and more aware of what's going on inside the ranks? And I, I think it's difficult because, you know, you, you want to – toe the line between management and being a board member in governance, and so you don't want to be intrusive uh, into the company's operations or the organization's operations as a board member, but just how would you start to think about, you know, the, where this would land in a committee of the board, where the board should start being more proactive, and how that might work? Uh, yeah. Any thoughts? And Keith, I think uh, the way you set up that question is a good one because there are boundaries there in terms of the role and responsibilities of management and the board. But I think what we've seen in uh, with the development of these movements and the focus on company culture and practices, uh, the board needs to take a more of an active role to ensure that management is complying with the laws. So I think there needs to be today enhanced board stewardship and accountability, and uh, the board should clearly understand, be knowledgeable of, and be able to articulate the culture of the company and its commitment to the principles we've discussed today. Uh, the board also should lead by example. There should be a diversity on the board, um, and the composition of the board should also include expertise of board members in areas beyond the more typical financial services uh, role um, to those who are able to provide oversight to companies in areas that are the subject of the hashtag MeToo and Time's Up movement. Um, I think it's very important that the board review the committee structure to make sure that there are committees in place to focus on oversight of these issues, um, including issues of risk management, but even beyond that to ensure um, that the culture of the company. And I think it's also very important that uh, the board undergo training, the board members undergo training and they are knowledgeable themselves on the uh, federal standards, statutes, and regulations. Um, and I think it's also important that the board ensure that there are effective reporting systems and that board members, you know, are aware of complaints that are coming in to the company. Uh, the EEOC task force report that I referenced earlier found that harassment in the workplace remains a persistent problem. It found that uh, one-third of the approximately 90,000 charges received by the EEOC in fiscal year 2015 included an allegation of workplace harassment, including on the basis of sex, 
sexual orientation, gender identity, and pregnancy included within that, uh, as well as race, disability, age, ethnicity, national origin, color, and religion. And the report found that um, employees who experienced this often failed to report it because they feared disbelief of their claim, inaction, blame, or social or professional retaliation. So I think it's really important that uh, the boards today strive for a holistic approach in ensuring um, not only a compliant workforce with um, the statutes we've outlined, but also a culture that's going to encourage employees to stay with the organization, to be motivated, to feel like it is a safe and respectful workplace. Yeah, I wonder, Gail, you know, the if you think about the way an audit committee is designed and worked, and if there's any material exceptions or um, issues with the uh, audited financials, the audit committee will always get a report on what those exceptions look like and then there's a period of time to, to execute against those exceptions uh, for management and to correct those issues. Back to your point about re reporting uh, harassment and other types of, of uh, bad behavior in the organization, I would imagine that, you know, there in many companies there's a process to distill down those claims and then at some point bring them forward potentially to the audit committee or maybe to the compensation committee depending on the board. But that's, you know, in and of itself, I think, just the tip of the iceberg because to your earlier point, there could be a large number of, of individuals in the organization who are being harassed but are not coming forward to uh, make the statement that, you know, something's wrong. Is there any correlation, you think, between a board trying to be more transparent uh, with the management team and being uh, more diligent around a process to at least evaluate and be aware of the claims that are coming through, as you would think about uh, financials and the fact that you have exceptions to the audit report. You know, you might have a, a, a portion of the organization that feels like the culture is dysfunctional in a way that, you know, leads to bad behavior, personal behavior. Or, you know, how far should that board or that committee take uh, take that thought? Because, you know, you really can't, unearth what's not being claimed, but yet if there are some claims out there of bad behavior, I, I think as a board you'd want to know what that is. But w where do you see, you know, a board kind of taking action and, and developing a process to be more open and transparent on this topic? Yeah, I think that it's very important for the companies to review their policies and to bring those policies to life, not just put it in a handbook that maybe employees will not look at but through employee orientation, through um, ongoing training, really communicate uh, through effective training what those policies mean, that they are taken seriously, uh, to have very robust reporting processes so that employees understand um, that there are various avenues for reporting um, the claims that uh, I think it's very important for the company leadership to participate in training so employees see that the uh, highest levels of management take these uh, policies seriously. And I think employees um, need to see that when there are allegations that are corroborated, that action is taken. 
and that uh, the company sends the clear message that there is not retaliation and that the company uh, will enforce those policies. And uh, the studies have shown that even if you have uh, rainmakers within the company, highly productive individuals, if they are um, engaging in conduct that's in violation of these laws, ultimately it's going to do more damage to the company. So even if it's a high-performing employee within the company, uh, and at the executive level, the company and the, the board has to be willing to stand behind that and to ensure that uh, action is taken to enforce the policy. And as the EEOC's task force points out, it, you, you need a holistic approach. It's really important to look at the nature of the company, the size of the company, the resources, what some of the history and problems and issues and challenges might be, and tailor a program for that. But I think it's really important for the boards to have the committees that are providing the um, necessary and, I'd say, enhanced oversight from the way things have been done in the past to ensure, not just wait until an audited financial report comes through, but for the board members to really um, feel satisfied that the company is, is performing at the, the highest levels of, um, of the standards with the principles we're talking about today. Let's talk about a couple of other aspects of this, um, what I call transparency and open communication. Uh, how important do you think it is, Gail, to have a diverse board who then can bring their experience to the table relative to this topic, um, shaping the culture down in the company and, and all the elements of that? And then also, could you comment on how important it would be to have an independent human resource function that would also feel empowered to help make a difference? Yeah, well, I think that uh, the diverse uh, piece that you've mentioned, Keith, is really important. I think that's lacking on many boards uh, because um, the, the employees within an organization are going to be diverse. The customers or clients that that organization is serving are going to be diverse. If you have a very homogeneous board that uh, may not have the background, experience, sensitivity, perspectives um, that align with those other constituent groups, I think it's very challenging for the board to be able to do its job and its role. And I think that, uh, for example, um, you know, women being underrepresented on boards and a lot of the issues we've seen in the workplace involve gender, whether it's um, uh, harassment claims, it can go both ways, there are abuses of, of power um, situations, and then on the uh, pay equity issues and, and gender gap, uh, where we've seen a lot of attention to that. So I think having the diversity on the board really is critical and will make all the difference in the performance of the company. And yeah, well, yeah, because I was going to say very simplistic you know, rear view, mirror view of the board's performance in this area would be that it was more about the results and not how the company delivered the results. But I think going forward, boards need to also focus as much on how the organization is delivering results, how the organization is actually working together, working with external constituents, as well as 
internal employees and associates. It's almost the how as much as the results themselves. But anyway, well, sorry. I, right. I don't think you can uh, separate the how and the end result because a high-performing company where it's a respected workplace, where there of uh, the transparency issues and a focus on equality, the company is going to, going to be able to attract and retain um, the best employees. There'll be enhanced productivity and uh, you know, good publicity, good performance. So I think it's, it's difficult to separate, um, you know, those two aspects. And I think the board and a company that's performing well, where the company is not the subject of negative media, there's going to be less um, investor activism. I think the board will have greater control um, to uh, show that it's doing its job. And we've seen that, uh, you know, the values we've talked about today and these principles are very important to major investors today. And they want the corporate culture to align with the values that we're talking about. And I think there's going to be increased uh, pressure on boards to make sure that that happens. I, I'm glad you brought that up, Gail, because I, I we see the same thing, which is the uh, investor interest around ESG and how companies are socially performing as well as financially performing it's at the top of the list uh, when they question and have interactions with uh, with public company boards. I guess to carry this one step further, do you see any differences between private and public companies and how they operate and, and their and the thought process around culture and the board's leadership in this area? Uh, are there any differences at all? I think that in the public arena, obviously, there are more disclosures. You have the reporting obligations, um, and so there's uh, perhaps that that greater government scrutiny. If, they're, if the entity is a federal contractor, they may be subject to uh, some reporting, possible debarments, uh, loss of, of government contracts. Uh, that can affect, uh, you know, a, a company, a private company that's, that's also that's contracting. Um, so, but, but these issues, Keith, I think um, affect both, whether it's public or private. I think there's uh, some of the same challenges and opportunities. If you're a board member of a private company or a public company, you should have the same mindset on, on these issues, right? There should be no difference. That's what I, you're saying, that's, I think. That's right. Correct. You were... To step back, Gail, and think about um, a senior executive, a person that's entering the boardroom for the first time, um, how would you counsel them on being an effective director as it relates to helping push a positive, productive culture and an engaged and productive workforce and, and you know, if you will, instilling the right leadership? in the company relative to uh, the company's culture? Well, hopefully by the time that director gets to the boardroom, those types of questions have been asked, and the company can feel pretty confident that there is a support and commitment to the kind of values and principles we're talking about today, um, and uh, whether it's, you know, the kind of uh, scrutiny of the background, experiences, 
uh, that uh, the person brings coming into the boardroom. Uh, I think it's very important to communicate, to have the board members understand and appreciate the culture of the company. And if there's something that is less than what the board member believes the way it should be, that board member should address that. The, the whole board should address that with, with, through the relevant committees. I think that the training is a critical piece. I think it's really important that uh, every board member go through orientation, not just about financials, but also about these um, the laws we've talked about today, some of these issues, the uh, potential landmines there, the importance of robust policies and procedures. Uh, the board members asking um, questions, a lot of questions to understand and satisfy uh, him or herself that the company is doing everything uh, that it should be doing to ensure that if there's some uh, conduct that's occurring uh, that would be violative of the standards we've talked about, that the company is, knows about it and is taking steps to address that uh, conduct. So I think a lot of uh, orientation, training, due diligence in the selection process, and, um, you know, a vigilance uh, on the part of the board member. Well, this has been great, Gail. Any final thoughts uh, as, as we think about the – and I think it is definitely, if you look at the top of any board's agenda uh, now and as it goes into next year – uh, this issue is, is right up at the top, if not at the top. Um, any final thoughts? I would just say that I hope this podcast has helped to highlight and increase awareness of the best practices for corporate governance and accountability during this era of the hashtag MeToo and Time's Up movements. And I appreciate the opportunity, uh, Keith, to share the benefit of my experience over the past 34 years and uh, hope that this is helpful to those listening to the podcast. Well, I wanted to thank you, Gail, for your time and your insights today. They've been wonderful. Uh, we'd like to invite everyone to come back in a couple of weeks for our next Craft of Governance podcast. And again, thanks to Allegis Partners for their support of the Academy and our mission to advance diversity in the boardroom. To learn more about the Director's Academy, go to directorsacademy.com.